every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to the original Money Talk for Tuesday, the 8th of August. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the European Union will press Beijing to reduce barriers to European exports at a high-level meeting in September after the EU's trade deficit with China hit almost $440 billion last year. EU Trade Commissioner Valdis Dombrovskis told the Financial Times that the staggering deficit, which has doubled in two years, underscored the need for Beijing to open its markets. Chinese authorities are putting pressure on prominent local economists to avoid discussing negative trends such as deflation as concerns mount about the faltering mainland economy. Multiple local brokerage analysts and researchers at leading universities as well as state-run think tanks said they'd been instructed by regulators, their employers and even domestic media outlets to avoid speaking negatively about topics ranging from fears of capital flights to softening prices. The China Securities and Regulatory Commission, the stock regulator, has accused brokerage analysts of playing up risks facing the economy, which is suffering from weak consumer demand, declining exports and an ailing property sector. The Bank of Japan said it still has a significantly long way to go before revising its stance on its negative interest rate policy, adding that its yield curve control framework will still need to be maintained. In its summary of opinions of the central bank's last meeting in July, the BOJ said it needs to continue with monetary easing so as to achieve its inflation target of 2%. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, William Marr, chief investment officer at Grow Investment Group, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, and also take a look at my daily newsletter, which contains more business and finance news from around Asia. U.S. stocks rebounded on Monday following the worst sell-off since March last week and ahead of a key U.S. inflation report due on Thursday. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq snapped four-day losing streaks. The S&P 500, which lost 2.3% last week, advanced 0.9% to close at 4,518. The Nasdaq Composite rose 0.6% to 13,994. Apple led the Nasdaq to underperform. It's down for the fifth straight day and around 10% lower over that period. That's its biggest such drop since November 2022. The Dow added 408 points, or 1.2%, to close at 35,473. And it was the best day for the Dow since June the 15th, helped by a 4% rally in Amgen. Long-term Treasury yields resume their upward trajectory. On Monday, last week, 10-year yields rose 10 basis points and the 30-year yield climbed 19 basis points, with 30-year yields posting their second largest week-on-week rise of the year. On Monday, the 10-year added another 5 basis points to 4.1% and the 30-year rose 7 basis points to 4.27%. Meanwhile, short-term rates continue to decline, steepening the yield curve and making it less inverted for the 10th straight day. The 2-year yield fell 1 basis point to 4.78% and the bear steepening, as it's known, is pushing the 10-year yield close to a 14-year high of 4.23%. 
Hong Kong stocks saw lacklustre trading as investors look ahead to the China trade data later today and inflation data on Wednesday. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index was almost unchanged at 19,538 after falling 1.9% last week. The tech index was also flat. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index fell 0.6% at 3,269. China's healthcare stocks slumped after authorities widened an anti-graft crackdown on the sector. The CSI 300 healthcare index closed 3.2% lower, making it the worst performing sector on Monday. And this morning at the Open, Hang Seng Futures are projecting the Hang Seng Index to fall around 70 points. That's 0.4% starting the day at about 19,470. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our guests. We have with us here in Hong Kong our regular Tuesday commentator, Asian fund management industry consultant, Stuart Allcroft. Good morning to you, Stuart. Good morning, Peter. On a nice, bright, sunny day. It is indeed. And up in Shanghai, also on a nice, bright, sunny day, I hope we find William Ma, the Chief Investment Officer of Grow Investment Group. Morning, William. Yes, indeed. Good morning, Peter. Sunny and hot. That's excellent. And I hope it's sunny and hot in Washington, D.C., which is where Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent, is based. Morning to you, Barry. Yes, good morning, Peter. Yeah, we had a storm sweep through here about an hour ago, and there were severe weather warnings but it's over now and it's still light so it's okay okay we're all in very nice climates then sounds great barry i want to start with you because i want to ask you about the uh, the non-farm payroll data that we had um, on friday expanded by 187,000 new jobs slightly below uh, the estimate for 200,000 but previous month's totals were revised lower by 49,000 for the for may and june the unemployment rate was three and a half percent now that's just above the lowest level seen since 1969 um, if you include a more encompassing unemployment rate that includes discouraged workers and those holding part-time jobs for economic reasons, then the unemployment rate fell to 6.7%. Average hourly earnings rose 0.4% for the month and 4.4% for the year. Um, I know people were saying that um, employment is showing signs of slowing, but to me, this looks pretty robust jobs data. I agree. I think it's very robust, and I think it's rather good that things are slackening just a bit because 180,000 new jobs, that's a pretty good report. Certainly, if you have hourly earnings that are up 4% over the past year, I think the Fed is happy with that. I think an unemployment rate that is, what you say, the lowest since 1969, that's got to be good. So, uh, you know, the Fed policy has been working, and in one sense, Stuart might not agree, but I think we're in a Goldilocks economy over here. No, I, I don't disagree, Barry. I think you are. And I think that's part of the problem, that um, it's giving a very false impression of where it could be in maybe a year or two's time. Um, you know, one of the disturbing things about the reports that um, have been coming out is that the Fed actually wants to see higher levels of unemployment because it, it will justify what it's doing in terms of higher interest rates and uh, controlling the economy and ensuring that inflation stays low. You know, this is, these, these are the things that um, are not happening. The Fed is, uh, if anything, disappointed that uh, unemployment rates are as low as they are. Um, now, 
why should they be disappointed? Not really, but uh, they shouldn't be. But but it is a very good thing for the economy overall. Um, so it's a it's 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 a troubling time, I think, from an economic perspective about what's going on with the U.S. economy. But at the same time, it's it's showing the strength that probably a lot of other economies can't show. William, this is pretty important for global markets, isn't it? What happens to the US jobs market, given that the Fed focuses very closely um, on this data, although the jobs gains have slowed a little bit, do you think they've slowed enough to stop the Fed from raising interest rates? Well, I think um, despite it's slowing, but it's still very early. If you look at the last uh, year or so, actually, that number on a monthly basis has been changing. And uh, I think it's too early to call whether, you know, it's enough uh, slow down. From a Chinese, you know, fund manager perspective, I think people are more uh, concerned about, you know, uh, whether this is the last rate hike and whether and when that will, you know, start, start going down because that impact the currency. And from a Chinese, you know, business as well as fund manager perspective, um, people are focusing on the U.S. dollar uh, versus, you know, renminbi uh, exchange weight, you know, more than the uh, kind of like the interest or inflation. Mm. I mean, the yuan is slipping, isn't it? It broke through 7.20 last week in, uh, in offshore markets. Um, presumably, if the Fed looks like it's going to raise interest rates, then there's no reason why the dollar shouldn't carry on rising. And that's going to put more pressure on the Chinese currency. Exactly. In particular, during a time that, you know, um, we need all kind of like three horses, if you like to jack up the GDP. So export is always, you know, an important component, despite people are talking about domestic consumption. So I think, you know, the local fund manager are watching or trying to predict, if you like, you know, um, the US dollar versus renminbi strongly. And our view is, you know, the Chinese government is going to defend. It would not allow the renminbi to go to weakening. But at the same time, if the interest rate remains high, I think there is a natural kind of like capital flow. People want to hold more US dollar or, you know, the exporter, they want to kind of like hedge more of their, you know, Chinese, you know, uh, domestic currency. Hmm. Barry, something that I've been intrigued about um, is where is the US finding all these people to fill these jobs? Because um, you need basically about seventy to 100,000 um, jobs per month to keep up with growth in the working age population. But here we have jobs growth twice that, and it's been more than twice that for month after month after month. How does it keep finding all the people to put into these jobs? Well, that's been a problem. And I think that has... Um added to some of the inflation problems we've had and probably why inflation is going to remain at these current levels for longer than a lot of people would like. I think that it is a distortion in the labor force. It, there is too much money in the economy. There's still so much money, Peter, that is going into people's pockets and mm -hmm. their companies' pockets from the COVID relief. And that mm -hmm. money has been a real disincentive for people to go back to work. For example, I was just in the Virginia, West Virginia border. The restaurant couldn't open because they didn't have staff. Now, these mm. are not highly paid people, mm. but they needed to speak English. So it wasn't going to be people coming over the southern border. They're in the back kitchen. But in fact, people do not feel the compulsion to get back to work because they've got enough money to get by and they know there are other jobs available. So all I can say is I don't have a good answer to your question, but I think it's still a very distorted labor market. 
Yeah, but I think you are giving the answer, Barry, because, yes, a vast number of people in the U.S., as indeed in in the U.K. and in Europe, um, during COVID, gave up their full-time employment. But they are, they are that that is the same group of people who are now beginning to go back into the labour market. So they are the people that are coming in to add to the numbers that Peter is asking about. Uh, where are the where are the people coming from? Well, they're coming from the uh, groups that have maybe taken early retirement. Maybe they stopped working um, to take some time out, and now they're beginning to come back. Uh, and I think that's that's going to be a trickle back into the market, but over the next year or so. I, I presume yeah, this might be. I, I was just going to add to what mm-hmm. William had said at the onset which was maybe it's too early to call a lot of these things because mm-hmm. i think i think mm-hmm. what stewart says is correct that they're beginning to come back and they're going to be coming back further and that kind of uptick is probably good for the economy but i'm not sure what it means in terms of the impact of interest rates i'm not sure what it means for fed policy and i'm not sure what it means really for corporate earnings because I, I, I just look at the potential strike we had at UPS. Mm-hmm. That was settled. Now we've had a big bankruptcy of a trucking company. Is that going to have an impact? I think in many ways we don't understand the labor market at this moment. Mm. And presumably uh, an average hourly earnings rate of 4.4%. That's pretty inflationary, isn't it? I suppose it is. But don't forget, the average earning for the United States worker is now $35,000 a year. That's not mm. bad. Now, you can say that's a meaningless statistic in one sense, but I think it does say something. Mm. William, I suppose for markets, the key thing that's going on at the moment is rising treasury bond yields, isn't it? And in particular, what's known as um, a bear steepening. So to just to explain that for listeners, what it means is that bond prices are falling, hence the bear. Yields are going up, but long-term yields are going up even further uh, than short-term yields. So that's, in effect, steepening um, the yield curve. It's quite a, a painful trade, I think, for investors in the markets, isn't it? But presumably, this is going to have some significant impacts on investment flows around the world. Yeah, exactly. I think um, the investor, in particular, some of um, the domestic Chinese investor, when they invest global, one approach they use is the traditional 60-40, you know, bond versus, you know, equity uh, kind of like a balanced portfolio. I think the challenge, the worry people are thinking about is at the end of interest rate cycle, whether, you know, um, the kind of like equity and bond both collapsed last year will repeat anytime soon. So, um, you know, definitely the what happened in the Treasury, in particular, the 30 years, you know, the longer end kind of like being squeezed down is not a good phenomenon because um, for, for normal investors, they are running out of tools for them to construct a balanced portfolio, if you like. Mm. And, and this is all happening at the same time that Japanese bond yields are rising um, as well, uh, nowhere near as much as uh, the US rates. But nevertheless, there's also concern there because Japan owns the biggest chunk of US Treasury bonds. And at some point, I suppose, the risk is that they'll start repatriating some of that money to Japan, particularly if the yen strength Indeed, indeed. And people are talking about there is a smaller and smaller demand, if you like, for U.S. you know, Treasury in the long run. But I think on the Japanese side, one of the popular trade done by the uh, some of the Asian fund managers, you know, to 
uh, do a carry trade following, you know, what Warren Buffett has been doing, you know, mm. kind of like borrowing yen and invest in equity. So I think a lower yen is definitely good for this type of trade. And I've seen people kind of like increasing their kind of like allocation because, you know, both, you know, the yen depreciation and equity market is going, you know, uh, towards opposite direction. So I think this could be some risk to being monitored down the road. But I think I'm seeing people trying to like topping up this trade. Okay. I want to switch. William, could, could I just ask a quick question of William? Yeah. Does the cheapening yen put pressure on the People's Bank of China to bring, to allow the renminbi to go down? I, I don't think this is a major kind of like currency on concern for them. I think the key kind of like uh, focus is still US dollar. And also in terms of, you know, the domestic Chinese economy, we don't see a lot of import, you know, or direct competition from Japanese manufacturer. Hence, I, I don't think the yen is an important uh, considering factor when PBOC trying to kind of like uh, monitor, control the, the in exchange rate, you know. Okay, let's turn our attention to trade. We were talking a little bit about this yesterday on the program. In the latest development, the Financial Times reported yesterday that Brussels is going to press Beijing to reduce barriers to European exports, uh, which are at a high level. The uh, the trade deficit with China between the EU and China hit almost 440 billion US dollars. The EU is concerned. The EU Trade Commissioner Valdis Dombrovskis told the Financial Times that the staggering deficit, as he described it, which has doubled in two years, underscored the need for Beijing to open its markets. Um, Barry, joining, I suppose, um, the, the US, isn't it, who are equally concerned um, about their deficits with China? Absolutely. You know, it's very interesting that um, that figure that you have on the European Union deficit of $400 billion or euros, uh, that matches almost the United States deficit with China, $383 billion for all of 2022. I'm surprised when Mr. Dombrovska says open your market so we can export more more of what what would the chinese mm. be buying from europe i mean mm. in the united states case i think we're pretty aware that it's been historically it's been agricultural goods it's been it's been raw materials like coal and it's been high-tech products and that latter category is probably going to be impacted by sanctions so it's it's a curious phenomenon but it does show what an export machine china is even at a lower somewhat lower growth rate sadly i i rather think from what i've read of this situation between europe and china mm. that mm. there's a great deal of naivety on the side of the european part um they don't really understand why China has taken such a big position in exporting to Europe. They talk about doing things, but they have to negotiate. Now, we all know that the European Parliament takes years and years to make changes. It doesn't mm. happen overnight. You can't wave a wand as you do in America or even China to, to make mm. these changes that they're looking for. So I, I think there's a lot of naivety on the part of the Europeans here. They're going to have to change a lot of practices. They haven't um, worked out how best to deal with it. Now, one of the issues that I mm. think has come up in all of this is um, finding goods or services that mm. China wants to buy. Mm. And part of the problem is that, uh, as, a, as I've discovered rather badly, um, whenever they have goods or services that China wants to buy, China makes them. 
um, and, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and cheaper and, and, and cheaper and and you know this is true whether it's a boeing jet or an airbus because china's now got its own aircraft industry or a handbag you know it's just <laughs> this is this is the this is the range of problem and um i i, I think that uh, we're going to there's going to be a hard lesson being learned by the europeans here so you're really well, saying that it, sorry you're really saying there that it's not that the chinese market is closed it's that the europeans are just not competitive enough exactly hmm. and and we've seen that for a long time but it's just got to a point where they've suddenly realized it themselves well i think there is a two sides of story you know Stuart and Barry and uh, and uh, Peter, I think that uh, on the product side, I, I totally agree. If you look at the automobile industry, when I walk on the street, you know, in Shanghai and Beijing, I see less and less the you know Western brand and more and more on the, on the global uh, on the local brand because in terms of the car quality, in particular the electric vehicle, in terms of the design, uh, quality and price, they are highly competitive and uh, at a you know good discount compared to the you know European brand. But secondly, I think uh, one of the most needed product, if you like, from Chinese is global tourism. So I expect, you know, if um, the air ticket getting cheaper, you'll see more Chinese people traveling globally. And that, in a sense, might not, you know, impact, you know, kind of like the trade deficit, but that will bring some of the domestic capital or money that they kind of like earn and spend locally in the European country and US country. And I think we are missing that part hugely last year or in the last few years. I was in Greece, you know, last week, and I have seen uh, uh, very few, you know, Asian or Chinese people. Historically, when I talk to the local Greece people, they see a lot of Chinese tourists. So I, I hope, you know, that part will come back and that will contribute part of the imbalance in terms of, you know, trade deficit. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to believe you, William, but I'm not sure that I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that we've learned in Hong Kong this year so far, and, and don't get me wrong, we've had we benefit enormously from Chinese tourism in Hong Kong, but they're not doing the things that they were doing in the previous years. They're not yes. spending money the way they were doing previously. They're not visiting the places they were previously. And, um, you know, it's, this, this is where uh, tourism is such a difficult um, export to, to govern. Um, so, yes, I, I absolutely agree that tourism is, is, is a big issue. And Europe would benefit from it, but um, it, it's how, it, it might be not the way they expect. Should Europe focus on that more exports of services rather than goods, where it's struggling to compete? But on services, you know, that would all, all help the trade deficits, wouldn't it? Services are just as important as as goods. Yes, yes, and and there is partly the problem, and I can talk for the financial services industry, because it really is a big struggle for the global mm. financial services industry to try to enter the Chinese market, to participate in the Chinese market. And even those that have got the licenses and have got there find it very difficult to raise money. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's not as easy as people would like to think. You can't just wave this magic wand and say, I'm here and, and, and people will give you the money. It doesn't work like that. But this is coming despite what China says, which is that it's very open uh, to overseas investment and in particular its financial services sector. It wants it to be very open. It wants overseas companies to go and set up businesses there. Um, but it sounds like there's a mismatch between the reality and the, and the words. 
the memo didn't get from Beijing to to different of the regulators, and uh, and I think they're probably still trying to work out how they can do it. Um, it's not that, and, and because of the difficulty, and I've, we've talked about this before on the program, but because of the difficulty that the um, initial participants are having, the slow mm. progress, this is definitely putting off new entrants trying to get into the market because no longer is it easy, no longer is it cheap. Um, the, the costs involved are very substantial at a time when many in the financial industry are beginning to struggle. So it, it won't be, um, I don't think this is going to be the route, as it were, for the rest of the world to benefit from China. I think they're Absolutely. going to be Absolutely. And let's not forget this whole de-risking or decoupling. Uh, mm. That means that uh, you've got governments, certainly in the United States and increasingly in Europe, saying, don't put your money in China. And uh, we don't want, we want your... Uh, supply chains to be diversified. So in that sense, uh, that offers very little hope for increasing European or American exports into the Chinese market, or so it seems to me. Yeah. W William, does China genuinely want financial firms to come to China? Yes, I think in terms of the licensing and opening, it, it is. But at the same time, I think as Stuart mentioned, we, we we hardly seen any global, you know, financial institution making big money in China yet. That's why people are still, you know, thinking about whether they should long term invest, you know, in China or they should focusing on the domestic market or some of the other region, you know, in Asia, like, you know, Japan and India. I think the, the uh, situation is a little bit complex. Um, from my experience, personal experience is some of the global firm, they didn't have the right, you know, China head or team to develop the business. So it's besides the licensing, rather they localize the strategy, you know, uh, on the product side is also one of the um, kind of like uh, lesson learned or things that need to be improved. But from a regulated perspective, from my communicate to them, they wanted more global capital invest in China and um, open-minded. But at the end of the day, it has to be driven by the market. If company is not making long-term and short-term money, it would put them off uh, a little bit, whether they should continue to invest in the infrastructure or building teams in the China financial market. Well, William, it's going to be an important week, isn't it, this week for data on the Chinese economy. In fact, on trade, we've got the Chinese trade data coming out later on this morning, which will tell us a little bit more about whether or not it's suffering from a global slowdown. And then on Wednesday, we've got really key inflation data. The consumer price index last month was zero. Um, real concerns that the economy is going to head into deflation, although according to reports earlier, we're not allowed to say that anymore. But nevertheless, <laughs> this is going to be... Um, a key week, isn't it? What 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 are you expecting? What should we be looking out for? Yes, I think the July figure uh, would continue to be kind of like challenging, um, given you know some of the new measures is being announced end of July, and also I think it takes time to be filtered and implement. I think the key kind of like monitor and focus by the domestic fund manager or investment industry is there is a lot of policy support on the kind of light uh, uh, um, 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 uh, supply side, but on the demand side, there is not enough kind of light policy support. For example, consum consumption, skill point, et cetera. That's why, you know, the market is not kind of light performing. 
Uh, one relatively bright spot to me, while it's short term, is you know we are seeing a recovering of the PMI in the industrial side, but not the surfacing side. Because usually, I think the industrial PMI is most more important to me from my perspective, because um, the business owner, the manufacturer, they are more relatively long term, and the service sector, you know, the consumer, they are relatively short term. You know, if they see equity market going up, if they see more job safety, maybe they will start to consume again. So I think the picture doesn't look too bright but it's well priced in by the market and i think if i have to kind of like uh, uh put on my kind of like position i would say there is more upside opportunity than the downside given the floor has been formed whether there is enough catalyst to check you know confidence back is uh, remaining to be seen yeah um i you know that's a it's a positive view william um i still think that the overhang of the property market the debt the extent of that is so vast um it, it has a, a very negative connotation especially when you look at it um from an international perspective um and i think that that is discouraging foreigners from putting too much money into the China market. Now, the amount of money that foreigners put into the China market is, is, is not that great, but it is still um, an important indicator, um, and, and, and people in your, your position do look at it for the indication of what's going on. Yes, agree, and Stuart. And I think the real estate sector would need another year or two at least to kind of like um, go through the cycle. One of the key indicator people monitor domestically is whether the unfinished houses will be finished. It. <laughs> and we're expecting within a year or so, you know, those projects will be finished. I think that will give, you know, um, investor or kind of like property potential buyer to start, you know, buying that again. So if there are buyers time. to be found. If there are yeah, we, we need some time. <laughs> yeah. And if there's and of course Barry will tell us that you know the US is more or less um totally anti putting any money into China at all. Yeah, that's true. And I don't see any sign of that changing. In fact, uh the head of the the Republican chairman of the China committee in the House of Representatives set up in January has just called for even tighter sanctions. So, I mean, there, there doesn't. Now, having said that, Stuart, the Americans seem to be threading the needle in terms of maintaining decent political relations while at the same time tightening on these high tech matters. So we'll see if that continues. Has, yeah. has there been any developments on this news that the China Committee, which is proposing, obviously, uh, an investment ban in the US, for, uh, you know, stopping investment in certain sectors, they were also talking at one stage about banning um, US investment into Chinese stocks and Chinese bonds in general. Do you think that's likely to happen? Is there, is there any, uh, any? Yes, there was a report last week on mm. that, Peter, and that uh, is not encouraging because uh, clearly... The uh, Wisconsin Republican, who's the chairman of that, is going after the MSCI index. Mm. He wants the Chinese companies removed. Now, I, have, uh, I, I will defer to your other guests as to whether that is likely, but that's what he wants. Yeah, I, I think Larry Fink will eventually have a big say in all of this um, mm. at BlackRock, because BlackRock are a major investor into China. They are clearly the a $10 trillion investment business. Um, they are also 
under the hammer from that same organization looking at trying to reduce but i think that it, you know these are commercial interests that are going to be impinged and i don't at the end of the day people will not mm. allow their commercial interests to be um, interrupted by politicians isn't the answer mm. though rather than completely banning chinese inve- uh, us investment into china is instead encourage msci to set up asia ex china funds and ex china indices just like we have asia ex japan um, which became popular back in the 1990s and then let investors choose wouldn't that be the solution well, there are already those indices available. Um, MSCI is not the only one that does an, an index. Low index companies around, and you can choose whatever index you like. You, it, <laughs> that's an entirely voluntary thing. The fact that uh, MSCI is a U.S. business um, is just convenient for the U.S. Senate. And uh, from a global fund manager perspective, I think at the end of the day, um, everyone has to be responsible for their portfolio, you know, from a prudent investor perspective. If the valuation is attractive enough, if the company's earnings is coming through, I believe there will be ways, you know, being found. You know, for example, I'm looking at a figure, um, the the gap between valuation of US and Europe and and China, Asian, you know, um, there is uh, at the 20 years high, you know, uh, in terms of valuation. So I think history will repeat itself and there will be cycles. So do you think it's time then to switch out of U.S. equities into Chinese equities, given rising treasury bond yields in the U.S., which is going to affect, obviously, growth stocks, um, and given the much lower interest rates and, you know, the cheaper valuations in China? Uh, that's a political question as well as an investment <laughs> question. <laughs> and I'm not sure we're qualified to answer. William, from an investment perspective, is it time to switch from U.S. equities into Chinese equities? Well, well, definitely, because, you know, if you look at the how crowdiness the trade in U.S. is, is among those, you know, seven tech stocks, if you like. And then um, the Asian tech stocks, they are trading at half of the valuation of the U.S., I think, you know, there will be time that the rotation will start, whether it will be, you know, next month or next, you know, quarter or so. I think it's, it's, it has to be driven by a different figure. But I'm, I'm confident in the longer term, you know, fund manager will do their own kind of life study. And um, you have to make, make economic sense because at the end of the day, um, uh, the investment interest, you know, or, you know, how your clients or how your beneficial owner long term kind of like uh, reward is should be the key focus rather than being too political from my perspective. Do you think there's any particular catalyst that will get foreign investors back into the market? Anything in particular that maybe they're looking for? Because they're very underweight at the moment, aren't they? Yes, I think the key is um, to have president presidency to shake hands, you know, with Biden again. <laughs> I yeah. think that is a strong sign. And to be honest, over the last two, three years, the COVID is a mystery, a miracle thing. You know, a lot of unexpected things happen. And from my perspective, you know, sentiment is the same thing. If there are some signs that change, you, things can change overnight, you know, like, you know, what people expecting the portobello kind of like, uh, China opening the U.S.-China relationship. You never know. When, once that change, I think from an investor perspective, that flip-flop, you know, paradigm shift could happen very quickly. And we shouldn't too extrapolate the current situation too much. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I entirely agree. And I think this this uh, move by China to lift the tariffs on Australian Australia. barley, for example, yeah. 
example. I think this is a, the, the, Australia went through a really tough time in its relationship with China. It's now coming out of that, and I think this will be a really good example for the rest of the world to see what happens next. Okay, well, very interesting. And I will just add to that, if I may, Peter, quickly. I hear mm -hmm. from both William and Stuart, money will prevail. The quest for profit will prevail. And I think that's an exciting question going forward over the next six months. And something we'll explore more on this show. Thank you all very much. Very interesting conversation this morning. You heard Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent in Washington, D.C. William Marr, who is Chief Investment Officer at the Grow Investment Group, and our regular Tuesday commentator, Asian fund management industry consultant, Stuart Aldcroft. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investment. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, Vice Chair of Research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Have a great day. Money Talk.